Christ is about one thing today. It's building His church. To Him, the church is the most important thing in the universe. It's His greatest priority. I just want to know this. Can you stand before Christ someday and say that it was yours? Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hi, I'm Bill Wright, and Tom is continuing his current series in Ephesians chapter 4 titled, The Church According to Jesus. History is not about the great empires and the great leaders. The headlines you read in the news are not as important to God in the sense of His ultimate priority and focus. And as we're learning through Ephesians chapter 4, there's nothing more important to the Lord Jesus Christ today than the building of His church. And He has a plan for how to build His church, and that plan is revealed to us in Scripture alone. Open your Bibles now as we join our teacher with today's message on The Word Unleashed. Turn back to a familiar and famous passage, Matthew 16. It's in the last year of our Lord's ministry when He tells the disciples clearly, unequivocally, that He is going to die. And in conjunction with that, shortly thereafter is the great transfiguration when they see the glory of Jesus Christ clearly and His humanity, as it were, slips aside and they see the glory which He had with the Father before the world was in that magnificent display Just before that, in Matthew 16, verse 13 says, When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, that's the Messiah the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter. You're a a rock, a boulder. And upon this bedrock, that is the bedrock of your confession, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Hades being that place where unbelievers are kept, being hell itself. The gates of Hades has to do with death. In other words, death itself will not overpower my church. Even the greatest enemy that the enemies of my church can bring, and that is to kill my followers, will not overpower my church. I will build my church, Jesus said. Now, that sweeping statement delivers to us several implications that I want you to think about as we begin our study this morning. That statement of Christ, I will build my church, implies that Christ is the one and only one who is in the position to build his church. Secondly, it implies that the church is Christ's great priority today. There's nothing more important to Jesus Christ today than building His church. 
The headlines you read on the front page of your paper are unimportant to God and to Christ in the scope of what they're really doing. History is not about the great empires and the great leaders. Human history in the mind of God is about the building of his church. Another implication of this is clearly that Christ has a plan. He has a plan for how to build his church. And another implication would be that that plan then is revealed to us in the Scripture alone. Since Christ promised to build his church, and since he will do it only in the way that he has revealed, then we need to make sure we know what his plan is, since it's so important to him that we know what his plan is and that we are pursuing it. Christ's plan for his church is spelled out for us in a few short verses in a section, a larger section on unity in Ephesians chapter 4, where I invite you to turn with me now this morning. Ephesians chapter 4. Understanding how important this plan is, that this is what Christ is doing. By the way, the church is the only organization, the only institution that Jesus Christ promised to build. And he said, I will build it. It's happening, and nothing can stand against it. Not even this life's greatest enemy, death itself, can overpower Christ's plan to build his church. So it's happening. Here in Ephesians chapter 4, we find that plan unfolded in a larger context. You remember, we're studying this passage that begins in Ephesians chapter 2, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2, and runs down through verse 16. In this paragraph, Paul provides us with the means for preserving unity in the church. He's telling us that we must preserve the unity that's been created, and here are the means to do that. In verse 2, put on the attitudes of unity. In verses 4 through 6, focus on the basis of our unity. And then beginning in verse 7 and running down through verse 16, he tells us if we want to preserve the unity in the church, then work on Christ's plan for unity. Christ has a plan for the church, and if we will simply put that plan into place and stick with that plan, it will preserve unity in the church of Jesus Christ. Now, as we flow down through this third means for preserving unity that begins in verse 7 and runs all the way down through verse 16, we're following an outline. And I'm, I'm going to give you that outline again just so you don't get lost as we look at this plan. In verses 8 through 10, there's the biblical defense of the plan. In verses 7 and then 11 through 12, you have the five parts of the plan. Verse 13, the ultimate goal of the plan and in verses 14 and 16, the practical application of the plan. And we're working our way through this passage. The key point of this section is that Christ has a plan for his church, and if we will simply follow that plan, it will preserve the unity that we enjoy. We've already examined the biblical defense of Christ's plan in verses 8 through 10. Last week, we began to look at the heart of the plan itself, the five parts of Christ's plan, and we want to continue and complete that point this morning. 
We're looking at the plan itself, the five parts of the plan of Christ for his church. Let me read for you again verses 7, and then we'll skip down and read verses 11 and 12. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. Now, as I said, this plan has five distinct parts. We looked in detail last week at the first part of Christ's plan, and it's this. Christ distributes spiritual gifts to his church. We saw that in verse 7. Every individual member of the church, every genuine Christian, has been given a special capacity by Jesus Christ to serve in the church. Today we want to look at the rest of the plan. The second part of Christ's plan for his church is Christ appoints leaders of the church. Christ appoints the leaders of the church. Notice verse 11. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. You see, not only did Christ give spiritual gifts to every member of his church, as we learned last week, verse 7, but he also gave gifted leaders to the whole church. Notice when Paul says Christ gave these leaders to the church, it implies that it lies completely and totally within Christ's power to appoint the leaders of his church. He gives them to the church. He gave them. That is, he decided who they would be. The church, folks, is not a democracy. It's a monarchy. It's a sheepfold with one chief shepherd, and that chief shepherd mediates his loving rule and his care through under-shepherds that he himself appoints. Now, the, that same expression back up in verse 11, he gave or Christ gave, means that the leaders of the church then, from the apostles to the elders of a particular local church, are intended to be Christ's gift to his church. They are for the church's benefit. They are for the church's good. So exactly who are these gifted men that Christ has given to his church? Let's look at the first two of them together, verse 11, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets. Now, we've already seen both of these groups, these two positions earlier in this book, and we've discovered that they are foundational to the life of the church. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. You'll remember he uses the image of the church as a building, and he says, verse 20 of Ephesians 2, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. And then the whole building is built on that foundation. You see, as we have already seen, the apostles and prophets were foundational to the church in the sense that they had one basic responsibility. 
That was to receive God's revelation and to declare it and to preserve it in the case of the apostles for all of us. You see this, by the way, in Ephesians chapter 3. We just read Ephesians 2.20. Just a few verses later in Ephesians 3 verse 5, he says this mystery of Christ and the church, verse 5, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. In other words, Paul says already by the time he was living in the middle of the first century, the foundation had been laid. The apostles and prophets had received the revelation of God, and now he was charged with communicating that revelation. As strategic as the roles of both of these offices, apostles and prophets, were in the early church, They both disappeared with the completion of the canon. That's why Paul even uses the image of them as the foundation that's already been laid. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 3, he says, I laid the foundation, and now you are building on it. So their job is complete. They received the revelation from God. They laid the foundation by inscripturating that revelation, and now we are building, as it were, on that foundation. They establish the foundation through their revelation. Their job is done. Now, the third group of leaders that Paul mentions in verse 11, back in chapter 4, he says, there were apostles and some prophets, and some, he gave some as evangelists. The term is only used a couple of times in the New Testament. It's used here. It's used in... Uh, Acts chapter 21 of Philip. You remember Philip, one of the six chosen in Acts chapter 6, and later he becomes, according to Acts 21.8, an evangelist. The only other time in the New Testament this word is used is in 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 5, where Paul tells Timothy, you remember, to do the work of an evangelist. Timothy was a pastor, pastoring in the church in Ephesus, interestingly enough, later. And Paul tells him, as you fulfill your ministry, as you preach the word, I also want you to do the work of an evangelist. Now, the Greek word translated evangelist here is related to the verb to preach the gospel or to the noun gospel. So the work of an evangelist then is to be an evangel. He is to proclaim the good news of the gospel, the good news of forgiveness to preach the true gospel. In the New Testament, these men, as we saw with Philip in Acts 21, were missionaries. They were church planters who evangelized and trained the people in the Word of God and then continued to see that duplicated in place after place after place. I believe this position still exists. Our church ought to be and is supporting men and women who do the work of evangelism, who are particularly given for this work of evangelism. That doesn't mean all of us shouldn't be evangelizing. We're commanded to do that, but there are people, men who are uniquely gifted And we see this even in men like Doug Briggs and others who are uniquely gifted to carry out this work. The final office in verse 11 is 
pastor teachers. Pastor teachers. Now, you'll notice that in the New American Standard, it's translated that he gave some as pastors and teachers. Some see these as two different roles. But the construction in the Greek language and the fact that the idea of pastoring and teaching are usually combined in one person in the New Testament probably mean that this is one office, that of pastor-teacher. The word pastor comes from the normal New Testament word for shepherd. These men are shepherding teachers, are teaching shepherds. Pastor teachers do for the church what actual shepherds do for sheep. They feed the sheep. They keep the flock from going astray. When members of the flock go astray, they go and bring them back. They protect the flock from wolves and predators who would bring in false doctrine and evil practice. And they help heal those who are hurting. That's what real shepherds who cared for actual animals, sheep, did, and that's what pastor teachers, shepherding teachers do as well. But this raises a question as we look at this term, pastor teacher. What is the relationship of a pastor teacher to those other leadership roles that are in the New Testament? The roles of overseer and elder. Well, those three New Testament words, elder, overseer, and shepherd, all refer to exactly the same office and the same position, the same group of men. How do I know that? Well, there are several ways I know that. Let me show you in a couple of passages why this is clear. If you were to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1, you would find, and you're familiar with this, a list of qualifications for leaders in the church. It is a trustworthy statement, 1 Timothy 3.1, if any man aspires to the office of overseer. So here you have overseer, and then there are a list of qualifications. Now, it's interesting if you turn over to Paul's letter to Titus, turn over to Titus chapter 1. Notice in verse 5, he says, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. And then he has a list of qualifications that are almost identical to the list for overseers back in 1 Timothy 3. Also notice that um, here in Titus that Paul tells Titus to appoint elders. You see that in verse 5? And then begin a list of qualifications. And then he calls the same office down in verse 7 the office of overseer. You see that? In verse 5, appoint elders. In verse 7, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. So he equates those two together. In 1 Peter, Peter brings all three concepts together. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 1. He says, therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ. So there's our first word, elders, and a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. Verse 2, shepherd the flock of God. So you elders need to be shepherds. There's our second word, 
And notice the next expression in verse 2, exercising oversight. There's the verb form of what we are we have already learned is to be an overseer. So Paul brings, excuse me, Peter brings all three terms together and makes it the same office. Elder, overseer, and pastor or shepherd. Paul uses all three terms interchangeably. Turn over to Acts chapter 20. In Acts chapter 20, he's speaking to the Ephesian elders. The last time he'll see them alive on this earth. And in Acts chapter 20, verse 17, as he speaks to them, or he speaks about them, Luke does, he says, from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. There's our first word, the elders. So the elders of the church of Ephesus come and meet Paul. Look down in verse 28. Here's what he tells them. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. There's the second word. To shepherd, there's the third word, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So here you have, both in Peter and in Paul, the three words for leaders in the church brought together and made clearly to be the same office, the same position. By the way, did you notice in those verses I just read to you in Acts 20, as well as in many others in the New Testament, it's clear that there were a plurality of elders in every church. Look again at verse 17. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders, plural, of the church, singular. That is the church in Ephesus. There was only one church in Ephesus at the time. Verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, singular, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, plural. So clearly the church in Ephesus had a plurality of godly men, pastor, teachers, elders, overseers, all the same office, but a a group of them leading and shepherding the flock. It's interesting, by the way, if you go over to 1 Timothy 5, still written to Timothy who was in Ephesus at the time, there is also a plurality of elders mentioned in 1 Timothy 5, 17. So the three terms, elder, overseer, pastor, are used of the same office. Elder emphasizes his character. He is spiritually mature. Overseer emphasizes his function. He exercises oversight over all the church. And shepherd or pastor emphasizes his attitude. He has a shepherd's caring heart. John MacArthur writes, the term elder emphasizes who the man is. Overseer speaks of what he does. And pastor or shepherd deals with how he ministers. So, Christ has given leaders like that to each church. How do we identify those men? How does the church identify those men whom Christ has given to lead his church? How do we know whom Christ has appointed as leaders in his church?
That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part three of his current series, The Church According to Jesus. Tom will bring you part four on our next broadcast as he once again takes us to God's Word, and we do hope you'll join us then. Well, Tom, believers may sincerely desire to serve their church, but how do they discover or learn what gift God has given them? In Matthew 16, Christ promised that he would build his church. I think we understand that. We, we are excited to see him doing that even in our times. But I think it's so important for us to remember that Christ is only going to build his church in the way that he has revealed that he will do so. And what that means practically is you and I need to make sure that we know what Christ's plan is, since that plan is crucial to him, and we must therefore know what the plan is, and we must be pursuing that plan, because in the end, it's only according to the plan that he has created that Christ will build his church. And so we can be engaged in a lot of things that are outside of Christ's plan. Instead, We need to be operating within the context of the church in keeping with and in symmetry with his eternal plan. Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And be sure to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.